All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. I'm talking to you from New York City, actually Queens, the borough of Queens, and we're without power today. So I'm talking to you from my cell phone. It is the fourth day of August, 2020. And I do like to remind you that I'm the editor of a newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. You can sign up for that by going to miningstocks.com. We like to also promote Chen Chen Picks. Go to Chen Selling, go to chenpicks.com. And Michael Oliver is back with us today. It's olivermsa.com. Those are three sites you want to take down and, um, and, and consider subscribing to those letters. I do want to thank all of you. This show making the number one show, or he's one of the most popular shows in the Voice America Business Channel. And I want to encourage you to continue sending along any comments you might have, uh, starting uh, any comments you might have to questions for Taylor at gmail.com. Uh, I do want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors for today's show Great Bear Resources, Benchmark Metals, NV Gold, Hannon Metals, Irving Resources, Lion One Metals, Novo Resources, and Sitka Gold Corp. Before I talk more about today's show, let me just say that Great Bear Resources uh, just put out another phenomenal set of assays this morning that drove the stock up by more than a dollar. The headline assay for Great Bear was 81.22 grams of gold over 10.5 meters. Not only is this a remarkable intersection, but it occurs very near bedrock surface. It was drilled 140 meters in an area of 140 meters along the LP fault that had not been drilled before. Also, results continue to show con- a great continuity of gold mineralization along strike and at depth. Now, one very well-regarded veteran mining analyst told me last week that Great Bear is greatly overvalued relative to another of my favorite stocks, that being a company that is not a sponsor of this show, but one that is covered in my newsletter. That company is Galway Metals, which is up, uh, was up more than 18% today earlier, at least I haven't checked it in a bit. But it was up on, again, this is a company that has an amazing gold discovery underway. But to sell Great Bear short at this juncture, even though we have done extremely well with this stock up to now, I believe would be a huge mistake because we just don't know the limits of this deposit. And every time this company comes out with more drill results, they're just amazingly good. So I'll be talking much more about both of those companies in my newsletter in more detail this coming weekend. So again, you might want to consider subscribing to Jay Taylor's Gold Energy Tech Stocks, go to miningstocks.com. I also want to tell you that I have now completed the content of a course on investing in gold. The title of the course will be The Basics of Investing in Gold and Silver and the Miners. 
the first lesson will be setting the table for a once-in-a-lifetime gold and silver bull market, which is what I think we're in right now. The second lesson will be investing in post-COVID-19 world, a fourth-turning demise for America and the U.S. dollar. The third lesson will be different ways to own and invest in gold and silver. And the fourth lesson will be the basics of investing in gold and silver mining stocks, especially with an emphasis on the exploration stocks, which is what I cover. And then lastly, the fifth lesson will be guidance from two professionals. Dr. Quentin Henning and Chen Lin will be with me in that one, and we'll uh, uh, do a video on that as well. Dr. Quentin Henning, who is perhaps one of the most, if not the most sought-after gold exploration geologists on Earth, will talk about what he looks for before devoting his time and intellect to a mining project. And Chen Lin, who has had a remarkable track record of investing not only in mining stocks, but in energy and biotechs, will also be, uh, be with me in Lesson 5 to talk about trading strategies that he has used so successfully for him and his clients. Now that I have gathered the content, I need to uh, film these various six lessons, which I will do as soon as I am able. We still need to decide on a price for the course, which uh, will depend in part on the level of interest. If we uh, have heard from it, we have, in fact, heard from a number of you. So if you're interested, please send along your, register your interest by going to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. And if you register your interest there, then we will uh, praise you of more details, including the price of the course, uh, once we are ready to run with it. And I think we do want to move as quickly as because, as I'm sure all of you are aware, gold and silver are really starting to march to much higher levels. Turning to today's show, my guest today, Michael Oliver, is back with us. Thank God for that. And Dr. Quentin Henning as well, and Dan, and Dan Oliver will be with me uh, as well in the second half of the show today. I've titled today's show, The Slingshot. Now, that title was taken from an article written by Dan Oliver, who will be with me, as I said, during the second half of today's show. His article refers to the dramatic and exponential rise in the nominal price of gold and silver that is starting to take place as the Federal Reserve has no politically has no politically acceptable choice but to hyperinflate our currency. In other words, to destroy the purchasing power of the dollar, which can only be seen as another fraudulent currency that is slated for the dustbin of history, as all fake fraudulent fiat money systems have been in the past. The only money on earth is gold and to a lesser degree silver and most of the founding fathers in america understood the need for honest money if america was to remain free because once money is in the hands of the politicians and the bankers it is used to redistribute wealth towards their own selfish ends that's why our founding fathers defined the gold defined the dollar in terms of a set amount of gold and silver but alas the sinful nature of human beings tempts us to think that we can have something for nothing and so Richard Nixon and the entire Western world, they bought into this big lie that you can print your way to prosperity by providing currency that enables you to buy more than you produce. So yes, the Fed can print, 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 but that doesn't provide supplies for consumption. And with massive unemployment now in America, thanks greatly to an overreaction, in my view, to COVID-19, Humpty Dumpty is set for a very big fall. And it won't be easy to put Humpty Dumpty back together again, I'm afraid, given the ignorance and misguided anger towards capitalism that we're seeing displayed by groups like Black Lives Matter and uh, Antifa and many others. So in the second half of today's show, Dan will talk about the great slingshot in the price of gold and silver 
as a growing number of citizens around the world are waking up to the big lies told by a self-serving deep state. The problem for them is that there are physical limits within the four dimensions of time and space, even if they think they are gods that can defy them. We are all about to find out that the men and women at the Fed and in the Supreme Court and in our government are mere mortals whose hubris has led them and our country down a path to destruction. Well, whatever God permits to take place in America, we need to do our best to love and provide for those around us, starting with our own families. And so I'm very happy that Dr. Quentin Henning will be with us in the second segment of today's show, because as much as anyone I know, he has been enabling shareholders of various companies, starting with no resources and open resources, to build wealth in the midst of the carnage that is taking place thanks to an increasingly belligerent American people and our totalitarian government. Now, I am super happy to tell you, however, we don't have to wait long because right now and right here, Michael Oliver is with me to give us his latest take on these very, very unusual markets. Thanks for joining me, Michael, and we've really missed you, I can tell you that. Hi, Jay. Good to be back. Yeah. Good to have you, and I understand that you've relocated to another state out in the western, uh, out uh, out somewhere around the Rocky Mountains. So uh, yep, I hope you're right. settling in. and. We, and we look at them. We look at them in one direction. The other direction is flatland. So it's kind of two-dimensional. Anyway. <laughs> well, that's nice. That's nice. Well, well, we had. I mean, let's start with gold and silver. That's the obvious one. Uh, what's your take here, now, Michael? I'm always worried. You know, I've, from past experiences, I know when the gold market starts to go up, I get really excited and I keep buying junior gold stocks and I buy them and buy them and buy them and then smack. There's a crash. And I've lost 70 or 80% of the value of those little junior gold stocks. Are we anywhere near that, that point no, in time? I don't think so. I think we're near the opposite of that. I think the, the tone that the market, especially the miners, over the last five or six years has taught people, investors in that arena, to be nervous Snellies all the time. I, I think the opposite emotion is now uh, justified, and it's rationally justified, because I think the technicals are totally unleashed Silver has demonstrated that uh, we, we, you know, silver was a dog compared to gold over the last five six years, and uh, it got flushed in March along with GDX and immediately reversed after the bear trap was sprung, and we had a buy. We, of course, we we like silver down in there anyway. But the once it crossed 1948 uh, last month, 19 dollars 48 cents on the uh, July contract, which has since expired. We had an annual momentum breakout that said silver is now going to go vertical rapidly. We thought the mm -hmm. first surge would at least take it to 25. It took it up to about 26. And we had a rapid sell-off, a buck or two, which we expected some turbulence once we got uh, up above 25. But now we're back up 26 again, which says the turbulence we just had there, you could have missed it had you gone fishing for a day. Okay, so it's the kind of that's the kind of break you should expect from now and not not multi-month breaks and uh, things of that sort. Very brief, short stabs. And if you try to exit, take profits, and you uh, take your eyes off the screen the next day, you may miss getting back in. And so we argue mm -hmm. uh, repeatedly of late that quit thinking that way. We're in a major crisis. We're in a major bull market in silver and gold that is historic. None of the others prior to this were facing the same kind of uh, macro-technical and macro-fundamental events in the world. Uh, this, is, this, we think, is the final move of gold, meaning that 
once gold moves up here this time, it is it will be opposite effects will be occurring in other asset categories. Uh, I call this the giant swirly of history. I think uh, the emergence towards state socialism in the West, the gradual loving Fabian type socialism as opposed to the jackboot type, uh, has been growing for 50 years. And it didn't matter which yes. political party was in charge, the growth of government, its intrusion, its uh, overriding of a free exchange between people, has created distortions, errors uh, in investments and in all kinds of arenas. And when that comes unraveled, all of these accidents and errors and pricing and so forth will reveal themselves with much pain. But then again, pain sometimes is needed to heal. And I think gold is expressing that. Silver is now expressing it. Uh, the T-bonds are expressing that, though at some point in the near future, they will probably go the other way, meaning higher rates. But right now, they're still a safe haven. Uh, the dollar has now caved. Uh, we had a number for last month that it, it closed well below turning its annual momentum back into negative. We think that's now wind at the back of gold. Mm -hmm. We'd also watch the U.S. stock market and the developed stock markets because that's an asset category that's likely to suffer greatly. Now, I know everybody thinks, well, the Fed has our back, the ECB has our back, the DOJ has our back, it can't go down. Well, don't bet on it. Uh, and also, even if they succeeded, and in some manner these indices, uh, the, the DAX index, the Nikkei 225, the New York composite, which looked totally different from the S&P 500 and from the NASDAQ 100, by the way. Uh, if they managed to actually continue to rise, they would be beat vastly in performance by gold. So it doesn't matter if they continue to rise. They're not a good place to be. We suspect they're going to roll over because uh, we think that the three, the three stocks we're watching most closely, NASDAQ, uh, the NASDAQ 100, which is uh, Microsoft, Apple, and Amazon, we think those blow-off situations, and we think that's what they're doing now, vertical blow-offs, which is usually the emotional tantrum at the end of a bull market. When they turn over, the leadership will fail. And also we're watching the other end of the spectrum, which people don't seem to be watching much, and that's the banks. Yeah. Banks in the financial sectors are behaving very poorly. Even on just price charts, they, they look like they're in a different world than the S&P, which is heavily weighted by those three stocks I just mentioned. Uh, and there's a, like a different vista of reality there. Uh, also, the banks in Europe now are at price levels that are below the 2009 bear market lows. So don't be surprised by some overnight event uh, among some of the big banks in Europe. Uh, so we're monitoring the banks because we think that that's where the ambush headline might come from. Again, everybody's looking at Apple, Amazon, and Microsoft. Uh, they should not be. But anyway, we think all these events are linked together. We also think yeah. the commodity complex is now beginning to assert itself strongly. Bloomberg Commodity Index, for example, right now is just above 70. We think if it gets to 73, the lid's going to come off, meaning mm -hmm. that is a weakened, uh, very cheap asset category will be a favored category going forward. It's likely to go upside in a rapid pace because it's so cheap, it's sold out, and money is obviously flowing into that arena. And I don't just mean gold and silver, but in things like copper, a lot of base metals in the Chinese exchanges are going vertical. Um, yeah. We think soybeans are about to go vertical. Uh, there's a lot of stuff out there that is uh, linked together, and we think that now we're back in the late 1970s again. Gold and mm -hmm. silver lead the way, and commodities follow, and stocks are a wasteland. So mm -hmm. anyway, right. it's, well, it's a different time a pretty... and a, a different place, and you have to think differently, I think. 
Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, you can't just think lin- in a linear fashion your whole life. Sometimes things go exponential, and it certainly seems what's happening right now. And I might say that your views on the banks are right in sync with Alistair McLeod as well, who has been warning that the banks, not only the banks, but he thinks the dollar is in for some huge trouble before the end of this year. Michael, Absolutely. I want to thank you so much for being back with us. Your your uh, your ideas are just really, your views are just so much uh, beloved in this uh, in this space. So I want to thank you so much for being back with us again, and we'll uh, look forward to talking to you in a couple of weeks from now. Thank you, Jay. All righty. Take care. Well, folks, we do have to go to break now, but don't go away because Quentin Henning is with us, and uh, I think he may have some some important news to tell us. I'm not quite sure if he can do it or not today, but we're hoping he can. He'll be back with me right after the break, so don't go away. Noble Resources Corp. trades on the OTCQX under the symbol NSRPF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol NVO. Its flagship assets are located in the Pilbara region of Western Australia. Novo has recently partnered with Sumitomo Corporation of Japan to evaluate, advance, and develop the company's Australian gold projects. With over $40 million in cash and $60 million committed from Sumitomo, Novo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia. NV Gold Core, trading under NVX on the TSX and NVGLF on the OTC, is a gold exploration company focused on uncovering the next multi-million ounce gold deposit in North America. With an aggressive exploration season ahead in 2020, a tight share structure, strong management ownership, key strategic investors including Eric Sprott, a globally recognized technical team, technical coverage from industry gold experts, and cash in its treasury. Visit nvgoldcore.com to learn more on this exciting story. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times and Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Dr. Quentin Henning. Uh, he is uh, heads up Novo Resources and is involved also uh, with some other companies that we cover, Irving uh, being one here in this, uh, in this uh, show. Uh, and I'm really, really glad to have Quentin back with me. Thanks for joining me today, Quentin. Thank you, Jay. Now, I, I understand you may have some news. You may have something to tell our listeners that's something that perhaps some news that you just released can you share that with us uh yeah it's uh it's a fairly important uh news item this time um and i'm really happy that we can uh, that i can actually discuss it on your show first i think this is an appropriate setting oh, uh, i can you. think back <laughs> i can think back to the first time we discussed novo back i think in 2012 or 2013 yeah, in the coffee shop Outside of PDAC, <laughs> you know, I think That's we both right. remember. <laughs> That's right. Well, 
So look, we've uh, we've done done the hard yards. Uh, we've we've done a lot of work to get Novo through many stages of exploration, in particular our Beaton's Creek project, which is now uh, the most advanced project uh, by far. We've got ready for production. All right. So the key for us ability to process a rock. Okay, it's one thing yeah. to have rock with gold in it. It's another thing to have uh, a big chemical plant, uh, if you will, a mill, that you can put the rock in and extract gold and make gold bars. Um, today, we're very proud to announce that we have uh, struck a deal with a neighboring company. Uh, the company is a privately held entity called Millennium Minerals. It was held or is held by IMC Holdings out of Singapore. We announced uh, an acquisition of the asset uh, actually just a few minutes ago. We've been in trading halt all day today. It took a while for folks to review the the release and materials that we submitted. Uh, but the news is out now. People can go and, and check it out. They can read the details. Uh, the acquisition is pretty straightforward. Um, we have uh, – are you trying to call me again? <laughs> it looks like you're trying to call me twice. That's strange. Um, anyway, must be something to do with Skype today. Um, I'm sure. I'm sure. Anyway, look, uh, it's pretty straightforward acquisition. Uh, we are, you know, paying in cash and shares. Uh, the total value is around 90 million U.S. And you know, funny enough, that's about what the the mill facility was built for back in two, 2012. So almost dollar for dollar. So basically, we're buying, uh, you know, a mill facility. It's in good shape. Uh, there are, you know, a few modifications we'll have to make. But by and large, this thing is ideally suited, you know, in terms of size, the metallurgy, so forth, for what we want to accomplish. And that's processing our Beaton's Creek material. Uh, the the uh, acquisition should close, say, in about a month's time. Uh, the other aspect of this is financing. Okay, we've struck... Uh, or we're pursuing two avenues of finance simultaneously. We've got a, a lending arrangement with Sprott Lending. Uh, mm -hmm. This was struck here very recently. Um, it's it's effectively a $60 million uh, credit facility that comes in two tranches. First tranche is $35 million U.S., which is roughly, uh, we'll call it about 40, I believe, $48 million Australian or thereabouts. Uh, and then the second tranche is for 25 million U.S. So total, a total of 60. Once again, uh, very good terms on that. The details are in the news release. I won't take time right now. It's a good piece of paper that allows us to get uh, a lot of the cash we need to get this thing launched. Uh, the other thing we're doing is pursuing an equity raise on the back of this, a modest equity raise. We're targeting 30 million Canadian. Uh, that money is largely going to be needed for capitalizing things over the next few months. Uh, we do have, you know, some work to do. You know, mining isn't just a matter of rocking up with some equipment and starting to dig a hole in the ground. We do have to make some plans, preparations, a few modifications here and there. Uh, we also have to now take uh, the permits we have for the Beaton's Creek project and meld them and, and get the, the full permits to bolt the whole thing together. So there is... Uh, you know, some, some you know, we'll call it uh, yardage left that we have to tackle here, but it's, it's pretty straightforward. You know, one of the beautiful things about Western Australia right now is that they are focused like a laser on maintaining their mining industry. You know, they made it a top mandate to, to bolster the economy, to keep mines open. So their iron ore mines are open, gold mining's in business. 
there are uh, they're making every effort to make sure mines, especially like what we're talking about, get into production and provide jobs. All right, so we're in a very good environment. Now, uh, let's step back and look at this uh, real quick. This is an interesting situation. Um, we are uh, an exploration company making a, what I would call a quantum leap into production. There's a lot involved here. Okay, first of all, you need a team. We have an excellent team in Perth. Uh, Rob Humphreyson, our CEO, uh, has brought on additional people over the past few years, uh, past couple of months even, uh, such as Chris Martin, who's going to be the general manager of the operation. All of the folks we have are seasoned in their uh, occupation. You know, this includes engineers, uh, environmental scientists, and you know, native title specialists, so forth. So, uh, you know, of course, geologists for the exploration. Uh, these are all the things we need to become a producing company. So we can make that quantum leap now. We have the the team in hand. And I can't thank everyone enough, especially uh, Ronan Savile Walsh, our CFO, who's worked tire tirelessly to to get this transaction done. It's just been amazing. Uh, it has been a challenge, you know, three months of negotiating and uh, a lot of late nights. I'll say, uh, you know, given coronavirus, no ability to travel, but we we pulled it off. So it's a remarkable feat. We got a great team, and we're ready in that regard. Now, there's other things you need. Okay, we've got the deposit, no problem. Uh, but what do we need? We need good commodity price. We are hitting this just right. Okay, uh, today, you know, look at the gold price. We we crossed that two thousand dollar mark. My gosh, you know, I I don't think I couldn't have ever dreamed of timing it better than than we have right now. I remember back in 2015 during the dark days of gold mining when I think gold was yeah. hovering around 275 an ounce. And I, I thought, my gosh, i got to get Beaton's Creek into production somehow. That's how we're going to survive. And then one morning I woke up and I realized, you're an idiot. If you get Beaton's Creek into production right now, you're going to be selling gold for $1,275 an ounce. That's stupid. <laughs> we all know that gold's worth a heck of a lot more than that. All right, so I kind of stepped back and, and considered the bigger picture, the overall trajectory, you know, a number of things happened, too, that, that uh, you know, were kind of pivotal with the discovery out of Karatha and so forth and Edgeness uh, since mm -hmm. then. Right. Uh, but, uh, but it was, uh, you know, it just did not feel like the right time to, to push Pell-Mell to take Beaton's Creek to production. Uh, over the past year or two, you know, we could see this, uh, you know, this kind of culmination of gold price and other events uh, coming to fruition. And it, it just felt more and more like the time. To, to bring everything together and make it go. It's not that we weren't doing it, and don't get me wrong. In fact, what we have been doing is laying a lot of groundwork here. Okay, so yes. Yes. Uh, Beaton's Creek, you know, we sought permits. We, we got their native title agreements done. These are big accomplishments. We did this all in the background without hardly anybody even noticing, okay? We got this puppy ready for the dance uh, without hardly anybody aware. Okay, we've right. got a, a right. solid source. Uh, we've got... You know, even internally, we've built a lot of, you know, um, models and stuff to understand the deposit and how we might approach it. Uh, now we can exercise these things. We can start putting together a solid plan to take this thing into production. Okay. All right. All right. Yes. Go ahead. Yeah, let, let me just quickly ask you, uh, can you talk at all about, um, I know you've done some work on the economics at Eaton's Creek before, at least internally. I don't know to what extent you might be able to talk about that. Uh, publicly, and then if you could possibly just, maybe you were about to do that anyway, talk about how the other projects might fit into what you just uh, did with this mill. 
or the yeah. acquisition of this man. Okay, yes, yeah, certainly. That is exactly what I would like to talk about. So, uh, first of all, Beaton Creek. Look, we, you know, we're smart. We've done a lot of work in, inside the company around what the, the Beaton Creek production story might look like. Uh, now that we have the access to this mill, we can we can actually formalize it. So over the you know we'll we'll be looking at how we can uh, tell the story better. I guess is the best way to put it. Uh, you know I can't conjecture about you know particular dollar amounts, but just to say that we will ox- ma- uh, optimize uh, margins as as much as possible. Okay, we we see a, a lot of opportunity here. We think this could yield a very high margin deposit. Uh, so we will work, we'll endeavor to, to deliver high margin and also as quickly and efficiently as possible, you know, obviously for as little capital as possible too, without taking any shortcuts. Okay, so can I give you numbers right now? I think uh, if my lawyer heard me, he would shoot me, so I'm not going to yeah. go there. Yes. Uh, but I will say this, sure. I'm very optimistic we can deliver something that everyone will be very pleased with. Okay, now, the next thing. Uh other projects, yes, this is an important picture uh, that we're building. You know, this acquisition is really the foundation for what we're going to do next and next and next. Okay, so uh, things like Caratha, people think, well, my gosh, you know, they haven't done much out of Caratha lately. Hey, hold on a minute. Okay, we're going to put a mechanical sorter out there, and we're going to actually do bulk sampling and, and testing the ability to upgrade material. Why? Because we think we can produce a concentrated Caratha that could easily be trucked over and then put through the, the same processing facility we've just acquired. Okay, so this is this is a big strategy. We're thinking big. There are a lot of other assets we have. Uh, Edgina, no, it's probably a standalone uh, project. You know, you don't have to go out there, produce concentrates, and ship them to the mill. You're probably going to produce Doré right on site if we get that thing going in the right tra- trajectory. In other words, if things come together, that's not going to require an auxiliary mill such as this to be, you know, a critical component. All right, but what what does Edgina benefit from? Well, the cash flow. Think about it. Okay, if we get uh, solid cash flow coming out of the Beaton's Creek Nulligan operation, guess what we can do? We can fast-track that, uh, you know, the work at Edgina now. That's a wonderful outcome. Okay, now other projects we have right in the vicinity of the East Pilbara, you know, in the vicinity of Nulligan, there's a number of projects that we're going to call, uh, you know, less advanced, but very, very, uh, you know, potentially a very high value. Okay, for example, Talga Talga is a is a system we've talked about a couple times in news releases over the past few years. It's a very high grade orogenic system, and guess what? It's within trucking distance of Nulligan. Okay, so this is, you know, in concept, we could mine high grade, perhaps even mechanically sort it. You know, we'd look at that aspect too. But it's, it's a situation where we can take a rock out of the ground and actually now get money out of that by taking it down to the mill. Okay, this is a good outcome. You know, we can fast-track these things. Things like Contact Creek, Convergent Creek, which are basically uh, Beaton's Creek-type systems uh, that are less explored. Now we can advance those. You know, perhaps mechanical sorting could be a component of upgrading those and also bringing those into the mill feed. You know, these are possibilities. Uh, there's even deposits in the immediate vicinity of Nulligan. Okay, this is within you know a few kilometers of the mill. By the way, Beaton's Creek is only 10 kilometers drive from the mill. Okay, uh-huh. but uh, we know of, of deposits out near Blue Spec, for example, that we've explored partially that uh, that we think will make great oxide you know feed for this this situation. So there's a, a lot of low-hanging fruit in, in our portfolio. We have 13,750 square kilometers across the Pilbara. 
we're going to unlock all that value, and it's going to start right here at Nulligan. Well, it's uh, it's really exciting, and it's good to. Uh, I, I think you're going to start gaining some attention again because it, it seemed as though you were quiet. I kept up with what you were doing, of course, and uh, it was very exciting. Uh, uh, all of the things that are coming together here, and it is a very large system, as you pointed out, or systems that uh, that you're looking at. And it seemed, you know, I've sort of looked at you in the last little while as being kind of like a company that has gone through its feasibility stage, not it, not that you have, but in the engineering stage. And that's the time when investors sort of get bored and they're not very interested. It's permitting and feasibility and it's studies and engineering and all that. You've been sort of doing that on a different path, no doubt, than most, most projects because it's such a different project. But now you're ready to go towards that production stage. And with successful production, Quentin, I'm extremely optimistic, uh, and I'm, I'm very thankful to you for, for sharing this information uh, first on this show. I really, uh, I really appreciate that. It's greatly appreciated. So thank you very much. Well, thank you, Jay. Look, I, I really appreciate the, the help and support you provided over the years. You know, a number, number of folks like yourself have been very supportive of the company. I'm very appreciative. Uh, you know, there's, you know, Corey Fleck, for example. I do quite a few interviews with him. Sure. Uh, you know. You know, it's a great way to get uh, the message out to shareholders. Uh, you know, and then there's this one guy. I think his name is uh, Bob something or other. I can't quite remember. Yeah, Bob. <laughs> I've heard Mori- of somebody named Bob Moriarty. That couldn't be who you're talking about. <laughs> yes, of course. Bob well, anyway, we, we do have to go now. That's all the okay. time we have. Thank you so much Thank for you. sharing this with our listeners. All right, Thanks, folks. Well, are you back? Thanks. Uh, so, folks, we do have to go to break. Dan Oliver will be back with me to talk about this slingshot moving gold and silver. So don't go away. Dan has some very important things to tell you. We'll be right back with Dan Oliver. Great Bear Resources, trading under GBR on the TSX and GTBDF on the OTCQX, is a gold exploration company focused on their 23-kilometer flagship Dixie project in the prolific Red Lake Mining District of Ontario. Having recently made multiple high-grade gold discoveries, GBR is fully funded to complete a very active 200,000-meter drill program through to the year 2021. Stay up to date on what's been considered one of the best-performing exploration stocks in the last two years by visiting greatbearresources.ca. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times and Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Dan Oliver. He is the founder and managing director of Mermican Capital. Uh, Dan has been on the show a number of times in the past. Uh, his uh, a more complete bio is available at the Voice America Business Channel website. Uh, thanks for joining me again, Dan. Thanks for having me. 
really good to have you. And I know that your life is, is quite hectic these days with, um, with all that's going on. But I want to thank you so much for, for uh, taking a few minutes to talk to us. Uh, I'd like to talk to you about your latest piece that you put out called The Slingshot. You noted that gold has shot up quite nicely since the March lows. But it's not just gold. It seems almost everything is uh, on the upswing price-wise. Tesla, for example, you point out, uh, has risen dramatically, as has Hertz Global Holdings, despite of its bankruptcy declaration. You relate a seemingly nonsensical price behavior in, in a lot of these markets. You, I mean, if you look at Tesla, for example, it's been a perpetual money loser. And the bankrupt company uh, Hertz Global, how do you explain what's going on now? That that's yes. these seemingly bankrupt uh, companies that are worthless are, 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 are the fancy of the investing public. Yeah, so, so going into the March low, uh, you know, I've, I've been writing about whether gold would have a big dip the way it did in 2008 or not. And, and my, my reasoning was that, as we all know, in the bubble that led up to the 2008 panic, uh, the, the Fed was caught flat-footed. They, they responded over time with, with increasing amounts of, uh, of programs. All, all have different names, but they're all one thing, which is printing money. And, uh, and then, of course, the QEs came and, and it, wor- it worked, quote unquote. It created a larger credit bubble. And so uh, I wasn't quite sure how it would play out, but what I did was pretty confident about was that not only would the Fed respond much more forcefully this time because they'd been through 2008 and they had developed all these protocols to deal with credit collapses, but the market itself would, would second guess what the Fed was going to do at a much faster basis. So if the same thing happened, it would happen at a very, very accelerated pace. And that's exactly what we saw. In the paper I wrote at the time back a few months ago, I noted that all the programs that the Fed took a year to roll out last time uh, came out in about 10 days and, and then some more on top of that. So the, the, the policy response was absolutely overwhelming. And again, the market, unlike last time, knew exactly what all this meant, which was uh, t- tons of credit and money being poured in the economy. So they didn't stick around to ask questions. They started buying everything that wasn't nailed down, including uh, bankrupt companies like, like Hertz. So I, I think it really is a function of the Fed has injected this, this new money, this newly printed money into the economy and, uh, and the economy's responding. One of the points I've been making in, in various venues is that these QEs are very different than the last round. The last round was a banking crisis caused by capacity, which is always the end game of, of the Austrian business cycle uh, when, when the banks over over invest or uh, over finance. Uh, capital items and then rents fall through over capacity and they all default. And so when the banks got the new the new money, the new reserves, what they did was what they what they usually do, which is go then construct new assets, which uh, employs workers, it drives base commodity prices higher. You get that Keynesian sugar high, and, and and you go like credit. And you know paradoxically, a lot of times consumer prices fall because as you get more and more capacity coming al- online to produce goods and services, the prices of those things become less scarce and they go down. So all, all the inflation we looked for after the last few days ne- never really happened because the inflation was all in financial assets and construction and not in consumer prices. The, the, these QEs I've been arguing are very, very different because this wasn't sparked by a banking panic. That was coming along. I mean, as you know, all the problems in the market began in, in September uh, and even before that, actually, if, if you look closely. But uh, but this pandemic where the, where the government ordered a shutdown. And so now these QEs are being done to finance current payments, so not investment in new capital items, but an 
enable people to pay the rents and the interest on the assets they already have. And so that that's a very different thing. That's just monetary debasement. That's not a credit inflation. It's something entirely different. And and what we see this is in the CPI hasn't gone up much, but that's because 40% of CPI you probably know is is housing, and that's been hit. And then transportation is 15%. That's always gotten crushed, so that's gone down. Meanwhile, food is going crazy. It was at 4% in the last reading uh, year over year. So uh, so inflation. Say, hey, the Fed says there's no inflation because some prices are going up and some prices are going down, and it averages out to very little. But but if you're living in the world and you actually have to consume things to survive, uh, price went up. And of course it is because again. If, uh, if people don't work and they consume the same, then and the, and the Fed prints the money, give them the money to allow consumption to stay the same, then the only thing that can happen is, is prices can go up, and that's what we're seeing. We're definitely seeing uh, prices of the things that you have to have to stay alive going up. That's right. Uh, and a lot of the other things. But Wall Street seems to take the uh, the CPI at pretty much at face value, and it says there's no inflation, and the Fed keeps pumping more money in. There's no inflation, they say. What could cause that to change? I mean, I mean, people seem to be content with low interest rates. Um, maybe the answer is because there's really nobody really saving their money anymore, and expecting some kind of a, a decent yield. They're just uh, really looking to go out um, and buy assets and uh, assume on asset appreciation will we'll get them what they need. Is that what's going well, on? Well this, is, well, this is one of the problems you have living in the world today, which is on the one hand, you've got to have money. You want to save money because when these panics come along and maybe you lose your job, maybe your asset prices get crushed, you need some money to, to live on. On the other hand, you know that money is long-term, is going down in value big time because they print less money and they promise to print more. And again, this is really is last time wasn't money printing; it was it was re, recapitalizing the banks. This really is money printing. I should say, really, it's it's actually both. I mean, the the Fed is of course injecting this money straight into the economy, but one of the things they've done also is to buy uh, enough Treasury bonds to to put uh, interest rates way way down and. One of the things that happens is this enormous housing refinance boom, right? And it's just a function of credit uh, of interest rates. I mean, the amount of money you can people don't think about when they buy a house or an apartment what it costs. What they think about is what's the monthly payment going to be. Right. So as the rate goes down, that same monthly payment buys you a more expensive house or or the same house just <laughs> at a higher price. And the seller then gets that cash from the bank, right? Not not the buyer. The buyer is, is, hasn't really changed, but the seller gets all that extra money that the that the lower interest rates creates a higher price and then what do they do with that money they go they don't generally don't consume it they go buy stocks or a different house or or other things other other assets and so that's that that's the way the, the private bank system not the fed necessarily but the fed enables the private bank system to and create money out of nothing through asset sales which then uh then juices the asset uh, markets as well you made a note in your piece about how the fed has actually done away with as i understand it has basically done away with reserve requirements they used to be traditionally something like 10%, except for certain assets, certain uh, like treasuries and so forth. Some of the more safe instruments would not have that kind of 10% reserve requirement. But generally, loans were reserved at 10%. And now they've basically, if I understood what you said in your article, they've, the Fed has actually just done away with reserve requirements so that there's no limit on the amount of money that can be created, essentially. That's yeah. just stunning. I mean, the, the, the textbook model, which reality more or less followed, was that, as you probably know, there's $100 of new cash in the system. Uh, you deposit in the bank $100, and the bank can lend out only 90% of that because the 10% reserve requirement. So they lend, they lend out 90% to me. But then when I get the loan, I get cash in my account. So I deposit in a different bank. And the bank says, hey, we have $90 in new deposits. We can lend out 90% of those deposits. Right. So lend out $81. And that's the fractures of process. And that, that $100 turns into $1,000. That, that, that's why 
is you, you almost think about it each time you, you say it because it's so bizarre and crazy. Yeah, but it is. When you're deposit a higher box, the 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 the, Fed, the banking system as a system lends out a thousand, and, the, and that's determined by that by that reserve requirement. If you reduce the reserve requirement to five percent, then that process creates ten two thousand dollars of credit off, off of that one hundred dollar deposit. And so, if you eliminate reserve requ- requirements, th- then it means that the banks can effectively uh, create infinite amounts of money. Now. There are other things that could strain them. I mean, the banks don't want to lend against things that they're, they're going to have a guaranteed loss. So if you walk in the bank, even if they can create infinite amounts of money, if your business plan is no good or you have no credit, that they won't lend to you. But they have the ability to lend an infinite amount of, of times. And one asset that is, on a nominal basis anyway, completely guaranteed are treasury bonds. And so one reason why the Fed likes low reserve requirements for things that they like, like mortgage-backed securities and treasury bonds, is to say, look, these things have almost no risk, and so the banks can, can buy unlimited amounts of them, and the money that they lend against it gets recycled into the same market. And so basically it means that the federal government and the mortgage-backed security market can, can borrow unlimited amounts of dollars. And that applies to any securitization structure. So if you look at the CLO market, all, all, all these structures that now define the banking system as a system is, is the shadow bank system now literally have the, the that, that money creation machine has absolutely no limits to it and, and it's another reason why uh, uh, the, the amount of money creation is stunning I'm sure you've seen the statistics the the growth of, of m2 of year over year did you do the number in front of you I don't but it's 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 the highest since after World War two it's more like 25 percent 25 yeah I mean it's just a stunning stunning growth and and you know the apologists say oh, well it's fine because uh, uh, all the money sitting in, in bank accounts is not actually being used the economy isn't going to push prices up. But of course, I mean that yeah is there now, right? But the money's there. So the second people figure out, oh my goodness, prices are going up. How long are you going to sit that much cash? Again, you always have some cash on hand for emergency purposes. But if you get a lot of cash and you see prices running away from you, you're, you're going to take the cash and go deploy it and accelerate that that trend. So this is a slingshot. There's no reserve requirements. There's nothing to hold back amounts, an infinite amount of money that can be created and will be created. And this time, as you pointed out, as Alistair McLeod has mentioned on this show, you know, the 2008 was a financial crisis. This is a crisis, I mean, in the main economy. Uh, and so what you have are uh, lots of people that aren't working. So you have uh, the supply side taken away to a great extent. And yet that's you right. have money that's going into the people, you know, to pay their rents, money created out of nothing. And, and so this is what Alistair would also argue, that we're headed for some very dramatic inflation. Yeah, I said, I said that, that, I mean, dramatic inflation. I mean, that, that that's the point is that, in a free market, prices would have plummeted because demand went down. That's what happened: supply and demand. The supply didn't change much, and the demand, you know, got crushed. I mean, by legislation, you you can't work. You you, you can't if you don't produce things, then you can't uh, uh, acquire things. If, to me, it boils down to Sage Law, which you may recall is yeah. you, you demand through your production, so you produce something, and then you sell that production for money, use that money to buy the thing you want. And so it's really it's your production that defines your your demand and. If you think about it, if you take says law and apply it across an economy, what it really says is that you can't consume more than you produce. I mean, it's just that should be pretty basic. The Keynesians can't figure it out, but that's a pretty basic thing to say. And so when you when you order everyone to stay home and not produce things, well, then, then you can't demand things because you haven't produced anything. But again, the, the Fed has mandated that no one shall suffer. And so they're going to print as much money as they have to to allow people to uh, consume what they were doing in the past. But since you're not producing things, the only thing that can happen is prices have to go up. And, and that's why I'm just certain that, that we're, we're facing inflation this time. And, and there's another point. I think the market's telling us this, and that is looking at silver prices. 
people generally refer to silver in, in the markets as just you know, gold on, on steroids, you know, with high beta gold. And that's not at all accurate. Um, if you look at the function of gold and silver throughout the ages, they had very different functions. Uh, gold was the money of capital. So um, when you had a large transaction like buying a ship, a capital asset, or, or ransoming back your king or something that required a huge amount of money, you used gold. For, for more colloquial transactions, you know, going to the marketplace and buying food kind of thing, you, you'd use silver or copper. So silver was a transactional metal, and gold was the metal of capital. And so in the 1930s, when we had that banking crisis, there was nothing wrong with the dollar. The dollar was very solidly backed by uh, by gold, by 90-day by commercial bills, and by a federal debt that had almost no debt because Andrew Mellon had paid back all the debt uh, during the 20s. And so there was no transactional problem with the dollar, and silver got crushed. Gold did well because there was a capital crisis in the banks, but there were no transactional issues. And so the gold-silver ratio blew out to enormous amounts. You look at the 70s, and you had a – a, a credit bubble that was resolved through inflation, and so you had a capital problem, i.e., uh, your capital was being eaten away by inflation, so gold did very well. And you also had a transactional problem because the money of, of, of everyday use was, was depreciating so quickly. So silver did incredibly well. And so we're looking at, at a, the next currency you know, crisis, uh, I've been saying for a long time, that it's possible you could have a deflationary credit collapse. The Fed sat there and did nothing and let everything melt down, in which gold would still do well and silver would do very badly. So it wouldn't be gold and steroids. It would be different, different things. But that given the Keynesian consensus, the chances of that happening were very, very tiny. And, of course, the Fed is going to print and print and print and print until, it, it's, until, it, it, until the machine breaks. Um, and, and in that case, that is the situation where silver – Outperforms gold, and that's what we're seeing. If you, if you notice, you know, silver did underperform gold big time uh, during the crisis, uh, as it should have, because things were melting down. And now we see silver breaking out, and uh, and that's a signal. That's the market telling us that uh, that inflation is is coming, and it's coming soon. And it'll be big. Uh, Dan, with the time we have left here, yet I'd like you to talk a little bit about the South Sea bubble. You talked about the Cantillon effect, uh, and and maybe just a little bit about the South Sea. South Sea bubble, because I know Alistair McLeod has talked in the show about the parallels between what he sees anyway, the parallels between what happened with uh, with John Law's uh, South Sea bubble uh, and um, and what's going on now. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So so John Law was a Scottish adventurer who, who created the Mississippi bubble in, in France. I'm South sorry, yes, yes. happened a little yes. later in England. And... Uh, and he basically set up the first modern banking system where he replaced uh, gold and silver that was in use at the time in, in France with uh, banknotes. And the banknotes were first backed by gold and silver and, and commercial credit, uh, which was very solid. And then he went, went around and financed all sorts of speculative enterprises and uh, uh, unpayable federal debt, you know, French sovereign debt. And, and they created the, the first large modern credit bubble. And Cotillion was – uh, one of his partners in, in this, a banker, and and Cotillion was a very uh, uh, Murray Rothbard said that he he wrote the first modern economic treatise, which is probably correct. And one of the things he noticed was that the people nearest to the bank got the money first and were able to spend it before prices rose. He he, he actually described this in somewhat differently. He, he he described it as if um, you discovered a gold mine because again gold was the money, the real real money at the time when when he was writing. Uh, you get very rich, and, and the things that you bought with, with the new gold you'd found, you could buy at the, at the then current prices. So, so you would change production because you said, okay, I want beef instead of you know, rice or whatever you were reading before. So the beef farmer gets richer because he gets the money first before everyone else does. And so the money flows into the economy in a certain direction. And the last people to get it are people on money contracts like 
uh, uh, domestic servants, he says, and, and landlords who have long-term contracts. Now, he talked about sort of, sort of course, what he, what he, the reason he came up with this idea is he saw it happening in France where those nearest the bank got the money first. And this is why in our country, bankers are so rich because they get the money first and the Fed. The Fed prints the money, creates the money through the process, and then the fractured process creates money in the banking system, and the bankers get it first, and they get to spend it before prices have adjusted. And the next folks to get it are people who own assets because this money floods into the asset markets. That's how they print their money, right, is they lower interest rates. And that creates higher asset prices, and that's why, especially uh, older folks who have who own most of the assets in this country, it goes to them next. And and then the last people we get are people who are uh, work for wages and, and money contracts and who are on uh, a fixed rate income. And so that and so that they get really screwed. And so one of the things you can tell you notice is that you get this huge bifurcation of rich and poor uh, based on how close you are to the entity, be it a gold mine or a. Uh, or a central bank create, creating the currency. And again, that's exactly what we see in, in our country, is that we have this huge bifurcation between these two groups. Mm-hmm. No doubt about it. But Cotillion, at least, was smart enough to recognize there was a problem. John Law wasn't. Cotillion <laughs> sold, went short. Uh, went short no, that's at the top right. He had a bank. He had a bank. People deposited their shares in his bank, and he sold them. So he basically short his customers' shares, took the cash, converted it to gold, escaped, I, I think, I to Holland or Italy, Italy I think. Uh, and then it, and then the, the thing crashed, and then he bought by the, the stock at zero, his customer stocks, and, and he returned to them, you know, worthless. And, and they thought he had abused his charge, and they chased him around for, for t- uh, 10 or 20 years. He became very rich on this. And then he, he, made, he died in mysterious circumstances in London. His house was burned down, and there's my speculation as one of the people he'd, he'd, he'd done this to. But in any case, yes, no, Law lost, believed in this bubble like Bernanke, like the yes. princess of bankers, and he lost all his money and had to escape, flee France as a guy as a woman. Uh, and, and, the, and the real bank, the real guys who understood how it worked, Cotillion made out, became multimillionaires. Um, didn't make a lot of friends, but they became <laughs> very rich in the process. Dan, how, how will this end? I mean, if the market was allowed to exist, you know, we, we would have a, a, a heck of a correction. That's putting it mildly. Interest rates would rise because there's, you know, there's a shortage right. of real capital. Uh, right. The Fed can't allow that to happen because as soon as they, they've wanted to sort of unwind and uh, the, the balance sheet, but they can't because as soon as they do, the thing will start to implode. Uh, so, so what happens and, and what could cause interest rates to rise right now? What would be a trigger that could yeah, cause so it this, to rise? This is just what you know, Mises wrote about. I mean, you know, constantly, which is that they're they're in a place where if they let interest go higher, you'll bank up the entire private equity structure. You'll bank up the government. You'll bank up the banks. Everywhere will go bankrupt. They can't do that if you don't. Allow that. The only way to, to prevent that from happening is to accelerate the money printing. And if you do that enough, then the currency collapses. And those are your choices. And when you look back, particularly at Weimar Germany, uh, we're not there yet, but we're heading in that direction. Uh, they, they kept vacillating. You know, they would say, "Oh my God, you know, uh, the, the the markets are unhinged. Inflation is unhinged. Let, let's tighten up." And so they would stop the, the, the printing press. They slow them down. Everyone would go bankrupt. There'd be a huge crash in the markets. They say, "Oh, this is too painful." They print faster. So they got they got involved in that. And that's exactly where we are. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's a much longer process because we're not, you know, down down the the vortex quite deep enough yet. But we see this, you know, they they, they stop printing the money as it. The first thing Bernanke did as a chairman when he got, came in was, was slow down the money the money printing, and then 2008 happened, and he had accelerated. And then what did they do? The Fed do for the last couple of years? You know, they were slowing down the money printing. They were trying to lower their balance sheet and increase rates, and and it worked. You know, they, they, the, the economy handled it for a year or two, and then the wheels popped out, and they have to accelerate the money printing. So this is the the process we're on, and it's going to get more and more intense. And that's again why you can't ever be sure what Marx is going. 
different because one of the features of inflationary economies is volatility, and volatility will increase, and you have to be aware of that. But there's no way out for the for the for the central banks of the world. Yeah, I mean, if you're on the Niagara Falls, approaching the falls, there is a point at which you cannot turn back. Uh, it's inevitable that you're going to go over the falls. You said we're not at that point in the vortex yet, where we're well, we're heading there. We're yeah, heading there. And, I mean, Again, I mean, to, to, to your point, to, what if rates went to 10% or 20% yeah. rates tomorrow? I mean, what, what institution would be left standing in that environment? What company wouldn't default? I mean, there, I, there aren't any. I shouldn't say there aren't any, but, but the, the vast majority of, of large structures in this economy would collapse immediately. And, and the politicians who are all paid off by these, these concentrated businesses won't, simply won't allow it. And so the only way you prevent that is by money printing. So we're, we're, we're there. I mean, we're, we're there. Money printing faster and faster. I mean, right. it's a, more and more faster and faster. Exponential growth in the money supply, in the in the creation of money. And that's the slingshot. That's what you're talking but not about. Steadily. They'll, they'll, they'll try to rein it back at various times. And then everyone will be thrown off. But they off won't the, be able to. Because no. right now with a, two, with a 22, I don't know, $25 trillion debt load now the U.S. has, imagine just a 1% increases it's just in just a one percent increase dan it's really yeah, frightening if we have time jay just one thing i want to mention too is that the, yeah. the 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 fed's talking about yield curve control yes which is in the in the in the 40s when they financed world war ii and the idea was they said we we the fed will keep rates at a half, I think it was a half percent short-term rates and two and a half percent long-term rates and and it worked quote unquote and their fed papers modern you know recent saying hey this worked we should try it again well well the difference was that in a war spending spikes in the war of course and then it comes down again when the war ended which is yeah. what happened now it never down to where it was before and it grew ever since but it did come down a lot and also the fed's balance sheet in 1942 was 84 percent gold mm-hmm. and so in other words, which is 25% of the known gold supply on the planet at the time. In other words, it was a hugely rich country. And if we wanted to squander our capital, controlling rates, we could do that, especially in the context when, when spending was come down after the war. Right. This is entirely different. We have a bankrupt Congress. We have a bankrupt Fed. And uh, and the spending is not a one-time thing. I mean, the stimulus COVID is. But but if you look at the long-term effect, it's, it's straight up with all these entitlement programs. And so there's no relief in sight. And so if they try that, they'll have to buy the entire treasury bond complex, which is more or less what John Law did at the end of the Mississippi bubble, and, and that, that's what created the last big jolt of enormous inflation before the whole thing un- unraveled and collapsed. Yeah, indeed. And, and Dan, am I just, uh, in closing here, just mentioned that you, one of your earlier articles that you wrote, you showed a chart that showed the volatility of gold in the Weimar marks, and Weimar marks during the hyperinflation in Germany. Right. And it, right. as you mentioned just a minute ago, there's likely to be a lot of volatility, but you got to hang tight because in the end, gold won out. Gold is real yeah, money. Hang tight and don't lever yourself up too much because then you yeah. can't hang tight. Don't lever. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Don't lever. And and those of us who have been around from the bottom up are, are in much better shape than the Johnny Come Lately's perhaps. That's but, right. Uh, that's true. Dan, I want to thank you so much for taking your time to talk to us. These are very, uh, I think, very, very important discussions, and I hope uh, that our, and I'm sure our, our listeners will benefit. So thank you very much for being with us once again. All right, folks. Well, that is all the time this week. Next week, Ronan Manley of Bullion Star is scheduled to be with us for the first time. Quentin Henning will be back to talk about Lion One, and Michael Oliver will be back again. Until next week, goodbye, and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.
Benchmark Metals is a gold-silver exploration company that is embarking on its largest program to date on the Lawyers Project with up to 50,000 meters of resource expansion and definition drilling planned in 2020. The multi-million ounce potential project is expected to have a new mineral resource estimate and PEA study completed in 2021. The company is backed by the Metals Group management team and believes this aggressive program will be complemented by one of the strongest commodity bull markets in decades. Visit BenchmarkMetals.com and subscribe to follow their success.